0: Uh, I don't. It was Chief Smith. It was what? Chief Smith.
1: Oh, I don't know if the church will be adopting that one. <laughs> okay. Good morning. Good morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray, Almighty and ever-living God, as your only begotten Son was this day presented in the temple in the substance of our flesh, grant that we may be presented to you with pure and clean hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's speak the verse of the week together from 1 Peter chapter 5. Be, be sober, sober,
0: be vigilant, because your adversary devil walk aside like the Seeking yes. who may be.
1: Okay, be sober. What does this mean? Quit drinking. <laughs> I knew someone was gonna say that. It does not mean quit drinking.
0: <laughs> be serious. Yeah, okay, be
1: serious to be be in your right mind, be quick of thought, Um, not neglectful, Um, be in full faculties, always aware. And that goes hand in hand with being vigilant if you are not sober, or often translations will say be sober-minded, if you are not sober or sober-minded, you cannot be vigilant, which is to say, to be vigilant is what? Watchful. Okay, always being watchful, yes. Um, One other thing that I would add to saying that it's always watchful is that you're always on the move, that you're never complacent. Uh, And that ties in with the idea of faith. Faith is never a static thing. Faith is always in motion. If faith ever is static, just sitting around doing nothing being stagnant existing for the sake of itself then it dies. Faith can't live that way because faith lives following Jesus and Jesus moves so uh, be sober and be vigilant always be on the alert why because your adversary, who is the devil walks about like a roaring lion why why does it matter that he is a roaring lion Yeah, okay, he's on the prowl. If you watch nature documentaries, like my wife and I really like to do, you learn how a lion hunts. And the way that a lion hunts is that it hides in the tall grass and it gets as close as it possibly can and the color of its fur blends in with the grass and they move so quietly and so softly that they don't Uh, That their prey doesn't even know that they're there. And then before it's too late, they jump out and they grab what they want. There's a reason that St. Peter uses the image of a lion, because this is how Satan works. If Satan ever comes to you, it will never be with cloven hooves and a pitchfork and horns going, I'm the devil, do what I say. Because if he came to you like that, it would be so easy to go, Oh, well, you look like the devil, I'm not going to do what you say. But he doesn't, he comes to you as a friend. He comes to you with, uh, with offerings, with things that you want, with things that you need, with things that you like. In many different forms does he come to you and they're all very attractive. So that like the lion, camouflaged in the tall grass, he gets closer and closer and closer. Now here's the other thing. Seeking whom he may devour. This all goes together with how a lion hunts, because what kind of an animal does the lion go after? The weak. The weak. The old, the frail, the weak, or even the the cream of the crop, as far as the prey of a lion goes, the one who is separated from the rest of the herd. And sometimes they'll even work to slowly push animals in a direction and cut them off from one of the herd so that the roaring lion is prowling around looking for the one on the outside that it can pick off which says uh, then that being a part of a community that is in this case the body of christ is such an important thing because to be in christ to be together as one whole in this body means that you're not off on your own, running around trying to fight the devil off by yourself because you won't ever be able to do it. To do it, you must be in Christ. And while you are in Christ, you must be sober and vigilant. Uh, okay. Let's speak this again. Be, be sober,
0: sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil talks about you seeing you
1: may All right. What is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Thy, Thy kingdom, kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayers, but, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. What, uh, excuse me, how does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom, kingdom comes when his heavenly Father gives us his Holy
0: Spirit, so that by his grace we will believe the Holy
1: Word, and the godly lives, here in time, and there in eternity. Okay, so that by his grace we believe. Already right there, whose act is the act of believing? The Holy Spirit. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit's. Now you see why I don't care if you say you made a decision for Christ. Because I already know that what you confess in the third article of the creed is, "I, I believe that I don't believe. And that when faith is kindled, it's not the work of yourself, it's the work of the Holy Spirit through preaching and through the word. And the working of that word, it gets in you, and it gets it hooks in you, and it starts to work on you. So it isn't your decision. By His grace, we believe. And as we believe, we do what? We lead godly lives, which means what? That faith is in motion. And what does faith in motion look like? Works. Now this is is prickly. The talk about works is prickly, but this is it. That we lead godly lives. Which is to say that you... Not only say that you believe, but that also you live like you believe. That you live like a Christian. That you follow Jesus you do the things that Jesus does. And you go where Jesus wants you to go. Where is it that God's kingdom comes then? All of this. When the Holy Spirit is given. When by His grace you are believing. When you learn to lead a godly life and are uh, given the strength to do that. Where is all of this? The kingdom of God in the hearts of believers it's worked in the hearts of believers but all of this is given baptism. Baptism. okay baptism is included let me this is so this is going back a few weeks i talked about the kingdom of god is not a place the kingdom of god is a person and that person is christ So where all of this takes place is in Christ, when you're incorporated into Christ in baptism, when you receive the body and the blood of Christ, when you hear the words of Christ and when they work on you, when you have the holy touch of absolution that comes not from the pastor, not from man, but from Christ himself, all of this. So in Christ is where all of this stuff takes place, (coughs) being a part of the body of Christ. This is where God's kingdom comes and where all of the gifts that accompany the kingdom are distributed. Uh, Questions? All right. To Sunday school. See, the cat's out of the bag now. I just like wearing these vestments because it's fun to swish them around. (laughs)
0: Oh, all right, uh, there's a, we're,
1: it's already the first Sunday in February, time flies, so this is it's a hymn Sunday. If you didn't get the handout, there's one on the back there. If you didn't pick up a hymnal, you'll need it at the end, unless you wanna try and sing in the German from this little picture here, but I wouldn't encourage it. I don't know how familiar this hymn is, Um, But since since Lent begins at the end of this month, this will be the hymn of the month getting us ready for Lent, and we'll sing this on Ash Wednesday. Uh, From depths of woe I cry to thee. Yeah, so here we go, getting ready for Lent already. All of those real cheerful hymns. From depths of woe I cry to thee. This is a Luther hymn, 607 in the LSB. and it's usually one of the chief hymns for Ash Wednesday. Um, it's Historically, this is one of the oldest hymns that we have. I say that a lot of our hymns are really old. This one is one of the original of all of the Lutheran hymns. Of course, the first hymnal that was ever published had only eight hymns in it. And uh, four of those were Luther's. And this hymn is one of those four. Um, the way that the hymnals worked when they first came out, uh, they were, I guess, so popular or there was such a demand for new hymnody in the Lutheran Church that within just a year or two, they already had put out different editions. So it started with just the, um, just the eight hymns, and I've talked about this before, that they published on what's called like a broadsheet, uh, uh, broad I think. Is what it is, so the music is printed and this is you can see on your picture here this is this is the original by the way, this is uh, what the music looks like and with the text too and it's on a broadsheet so that everybody would gather around you'd buy it and bring it to your house and or bring it to your church and you'd put it on the organ stand or on the keyboard stand, and you would have everybody gather around and they would all read from the one part and if there were multiple parts like when you, if you open up to any hymn in here, well, almost any hymn in here, there, it's in four-part harmony, but it's stacked. So that anytime you're looking at one place, there's a whole line of notes that go down, and it makes a chord, which is you know, when the organ plays, those are all the different chords for all the different notes that the organ's playing. So when the choir sings in four-part harmony, everyone takes their line, and then lines up with the chords. Well, they didn't write music like that back in the day. They had these broad sheets that were divided into quarters and they wrote one full part here, one full part here, one full part here, and one full part here. And then everybody would look and say, well, what part do I wanna sing? I don't know. I guess I'll look up here at this one. And then everybody looks at the same big piece of music and then just picks what corner they're gonna look at to read. And then they cluster around and sing together. That's how it was first published in 1523 or 1524, around around there. Somewhere between 1523 and 1524, this first edition comes out. And this hymn is there, but it doesn't look exactly the way that it looks in our hymnal. Uh, And if you know it, or if you know the text of it, it doesn't look exactly the same because it only had four stanzas. This one has five. And it didn't have a tune in it because the original tune was somebody else's that Luther kind of said, well, the meter works, so you can just use this tune instead. Uh, and then in 1524, and I, we've talked about this one a lot, the Erfurter Enchiridion, that's the bigger one. I think that one had 20, 29 hymns in it. Um, in that one, there was a tune now for this, and it was written by Luther, That's what almost everybody thinks. Luther did a lot of writing, uh, but he had a friend named uh, Walter, Johann Walter, not Walther, that's a different guy. And this guy, he was a contour, which is an office within the, specifically within the Lutheran church, but the Roman Catholics sometimes have contours as well, but it was like music director. So, the cantor would be one, uh, a gentleman, often ordained, often a pastor, who would compose music and look at hymns and write new settings for hymns and be in charge of all of the music that happens in a church. Uh, for example, the most famous of all the cantors was Johann Sebastian Bach, who was a, uh, uh, one of the cantors at uh, these churches where he worked which meant that he was the person in charge of all of the music, anything having to do with music for the entirety of the liturgical year, it was all on him. Which is why, by the way, there are so many cantatas because he wrote a cantata every week. So if you want to follow, if you want to, you can follow through the entire liturgical year and listen to a new cantata every single Sunday that lines up with all of the readings, all of the themes, all of the prayers, and even all of the hymns, because a lot of the hymns that we have as the hymn of the day, or what they would call the chief hymn or the office hymn, uh, those are hymns that I don't usually pick out. They're hymns that are assigned all the way back to the time of the Reformation for a lot of them, not all of them. So there are... there are. Um, these hymns that they would use and that would be the big preaching hymn that collects all of the readings together and all of the collects and and then presents it to you and then says so this is what it's all about and now you're ready to hear the sermon because now you understand all of this so in 1524 this hymn appears again it's got its original tune to- or it's got its new tune and then in 1524 again another book came out and this one was written by Johann Walter uh, which was a set of choral arrangements. And this hymn was in his choral arrangements book with the addition of a fifth stanza that Luther had written. And that version is the version that we still have now in our hymnal. So it's gone through a few, it's gone through a few versions even before it was locked in. Uh, but we have what we have. And then it's gone through a couple translations, but even translation-wise, it hasn't gone through very many. Of course, uh, this one is a Catherine Winkworth translation. She's, uh, just about every German hymn in here that's been translated has been Catherine Winkworth. (laughs) So, um, and it's altered slightly from what she did, but not very much. So it's it's been the same translation just about, I don't know, since the 1800s, I think, is when she did that. So even in America, it's been just about the same. The text is a paraphrase of Psalm 130. And uh, on the back, where, you know, there's the text of the hymn and then the commentary. I also have a third column here um, that is the text of Psalm 130. And I have it so that it lines up with uh, the text of the hymn, so that you can go back and forth and compare what the psalmist has written with how Luther has handled it in writing his hymn. Uh, and we'll, go, we'll look at that in a little bit. But that's just sort of for you to see. There are a lot of hymn paraphrases of psalms, as we've talked about before. Um, Luther really wanted to have a whole collection of metered psalms that were the penitential psalms. So the Psalms that are about uh, repentance and contrition and confessing your sins and seeking the absolution and mercy of the Lord. Uh, traditionally, those are 632, 38, 51, 130, and 143. Um, and actually, if you, there's the little sign on the door um, that's there when private confession and absolution is happening. If you walk up to the door, you'll see it. it tells you to be quiet because something's happening. But it also tells you that if you're waiting to go and confess, that uh, you should sit and pray the penitential psalms uh, because they help to get your mind and spirit into the right setting for confession. So Luther was really big on the penitential psalms and wanted a whole set of them metered in German, translated from the Hebrew, so that the German people could learn them like poems and then have these psalms. So he started assigning them. He had a whole plan of how he was going to do it. He assigned certain ones to certain people, and then he gave one to himself. And we know this because he wrote a letter to his friend uh, George Spalatin, uh, who, to whom he assigned uh, one of the psalms as well. But he said that I think Psalm 130 is one of the best ones, so I'm gonna keep it for myself. (laughs) um, And I like it the best of all of these. Um, So he did it, and uh, it became the text of this hymn. And here's what he himself has to say about why he loves this text. These are noble, passionate, and very profound words of a truly penitent heart that is most deeply moved by its distress. In fact, this cannot be understood except by those who have felt and experienced it. We are all in deep and great misery, but we do not all feel our condition. Crying is nothing but a strong and earnest longing for God's grace, which does not arise in a person unless he sees in what depth he is lying which is a really nice little commentary on the penitential psalms generally, but 130 in particular. Um, You know that Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after being caught in adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan confronts him, and he repents and confesses his sins and then receives absolution, and then he pens the text of that psalm. So Luther is correct in saying that the person really doesn't know how to cry out to God or even what to ask for until he realizes who he is. Until he sees himself for what he really is and not what he has made himself to be in his own eyes. And then when you see yourself for what you really are, the only thing that you can do is to say, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner the only thing that you can say, uh, which is really where the text of these penitential psalms comes from. Now the tune, it's a fun tune if you don't know it. Uh, It's not hard. It's just really fun. Uh, Composed by Luther, with some help from Walter, Um, I do want to take this opportunity to dispel some myths, Let's just see by a show of hands who has ever heard somebody say, well, Martin Luther just, he didn't write anything original. He just took bar music and he turned it into hymns. So you shouldn't be singing those because they're sinful. Okay. Hey, thanks be to God, not as many hands as I thought. That's really nice. So um, where I grew up, there was a great aversion to hymnody. And in fact, in the first Lutheran church that we were ever a part of. Everybody hated hymns. Nobody sang. Nobody wanted to do anything with hymns. They all hated them. Uh, And one of the reasons was because, well, Luther introduced this stuff, but it was all bar music. And uh, so he wasn't really that great, and his hymns aren't that great anyway. It's all bar music. Now, there is some truth in what they say. What Luther wrote is bar music. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. Bar music doesn't mean pub music. Uh, So if you look at this little picture here, during the time of the Reformation, how music was being notated began to change. It started leaving the Gregorian chant notation and it started going into this new notation, which is, this is kind of, this is more recognizable to you than would be Gregorian chant because this is like a hybrid between what Gregorian chant is and when you open up this, what you see. Now, you might not be able to read music, but if you open up the book and you look at it, you can tell that that's music. And you can tell that there are little measures with notes in them, even if you don't know what the notes are or how they go. Uh, So this is kind of a hybrid of what we know and the Gregorian chant It's a transition And they started doing these really interesting things, uh, putting the lines. So, you know, you think back to your, what, middle school music? Your middle school band. You were in my wheelhouse now. You've got your uh, lines. And in Gregorian chant, Everything's movable. So none of these lines really mean anything except to tell you how one note relates to another note. But now, they mean something. So we do this. And now, ooh, now it's telling you where we are. And then, I don't know, maybe you do something like this.
0: Boop,
1: boop, boop, and you go, oh! Now it's fine tuned even more. I know exactly where we are so that when you see this note, or this note, or this note, you know exactly what those things are. And now it's organized, too. So it goes like this, and then it ends, or it continues on, and there's more going down. And every single one of those things is called a bar. And this was sort of a new thing that was different than Gregorian chant. It was something that the people could access easily and read and understand taking i've said this part before taking gregorian chant and taking all of the i don't want to say superfluous cuz they're not superfluous but the the extra notes there's a lot of da 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 da
0: da da
1: da You sort of float around a lot so we take all those things out and we go well what are the most important notes bum 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 and then we take all of those and we put them in a bar and then you sing them and then when you're done you can go back and you can sing them again. So Luther used the new musical notation that was going on during the time which was the use of bars. So he does use bar music but he doesn't use pub music. So anytime now you ever hear somebody say that, I really kind of hope you don't ever hear somebody say that um, for their sake now. But anytime you hear somebody say that, where well, you can kind of say, well, you know, actually, uh, that <laughs> refers to the style of composition and not to the location of origin. So anyway, there you go. I like hymn Sundays because this is the time when I get to be a music major nerd again. <laughs> I get to just wait. It only gets better from here too. So the. Listen, I was gonna bring in my computer with external speakers and play a bunch of musical examples for you too and say, now this is what he's doing here. And I decided not to. So, <laughs> look, I'm being disciplined today. Um, this, so the, the way that the tune goes, you can see it here on your sheet, but if you look in your, in your hymnal, you might see it better. But there's the first note, and then the second note is way down here. And then the, it goes back up. So the whole tune starts with this massive jump. From depths And it's in a minor key. So it, when, when you hear minor, your first instinct is, oh, well, it's sad. Now, I'm going to just tell you, you know, musician to musician here. Minor key doesn't necessarily mean that it's sad. It just means it's in minor. But that being said, minor is often an appropriate setting for things like Lent uh, or for the penitential psalms because it tends to be a more somber setting. Uh, So you see that it's in a a minor setting, but then it starts with that big drop off. Bum, 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 bum. And the first line is from depths of woe, or from Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to thee, O Lord. Now this is in music what is called a uh, a text painting, where the actual notes of the music paint to you a picture of what the words are telling you. From depths of woe I cry to you, and when you say the word depths of woe, you go into the depths in the music. It really is genius. And I have a, I'll just tell you about my examples. Uh, two of them are from Bach. One of the things that Bach does, if you ever listen to The Passions, um, and if you, if you ever want to listen to The Passions and you want recommendations on which recordings you should listen to and which ones that you shouldn't listen to, just talk to me. I'll, that's homework I would gladly give you is listening to The Passions. But anyway, during the periods through The Passions, musically, when Bach is... Uh, depicting the crucifixion. He does this thing where the notes cross. So notes from the different parts, one goes down and another one goes up, and then they go like that. And it, the way that they sing it makes the sign of the cross in the music. So when they talk about, and Christ was crucified, it makes the sign of the cross with the notes that then attest and paint the picture of what the words are saying. It's brilliant. The other thing is an organ piece that he wrote uh, called Durch Adams Fall," uh, which is uh, a musical depiction of St. Paul's words when he says, "In Adam, or in one man, all men fell." And it has a lot of chromaticism. Da, 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 da. It's it's a nice piece to listen to, but the harmonies are a little bit ugly they kind of hit each other like this and they maybe make you feel a little uncomfortable, which is good because then he's doing what he wants to do and you're feeling what he wants you to feel. But the entire time, the piece is slowly moving down. The fall of man, it starts here and it ends here and all the way, it makes a pattern like this, like a wave, or like a Snake. Isn't that cool? So he does this whole thing, and so there's this little snake in the music. And then Adam falls. Just beautiful. And then here's the last example. See, we don't even have time for me to play them all for you. I talk enough as it is. Um, Richard Strauss, who's often considered to be one of the kings of what they call the tone poems. And text painting That's a different one. That's Johann. Okay. That's Johann Strauss. No relation. I don't believe that there's a relation. Ricard Strauss wrote many tone poems. One of my favorites is "The Alpen Symphony," just a, a big, long, like, hour-and-a-half-long tone poem um, that paints you a picture of what the Alps look like. And sounds kind of boring. Oh but it's not. It's really fun and it starts out at dawn, right before the sun has come up. And it's really low and growly, and as the sun starts to come up, he paints you this whole picture, and you almost feel like you're watching a movie in the IMAX theater, where that camera goes up over the top of those mountains, and you see that first ray of sunlight slice across the darkness. And he does all of this with music. He was not as nice a man as Bach was, uh, he was a little bit cocky and full of himself. Uh, in fact, he once said, I'm so good at composing text paintings that if you told me to compose you a, a piece of music that would depict the back of a silver spoon, I could do it. Uh, so, you know, he had a little bit of an ego problem, but he wrote good music. So anyway, Luther does all of this on purpose. You know, with composition, very rarely are things done on done accidentally. So things like going down into the depths to sing about how you're going down into the depths. Hey, it's teaching you, see? Hymns are didactic, they teach, and even the music teaches. Um, so there's a, a hymn, hymnologist named Eric Routley, who's pretty well known, and he calls this one of Luther's most profound, in, profound inspirations. This tune and and the way that he's written the text and how it fits in with the tune, it really is one of the best hymns that Luther wrote. Sorry, A Mighty Fortress is a good hymn, but but this one is better. Um, Now, I also have a funny thing to say just about music before we go on and start talking about the text a little bit. You know that Luther was a great lover of music, which is, so he composed a lot. He often had people over to his house and they would just get together and sing. Uh, He loved listening to music, he loved going to hear people perform music, he loved it all. And uh, he is quoted many times saying that he thinks that next to theology, music is the greatest gift that God has ever given to man. And he sings all of this praise about how without music you wouldn't understand such and such. But he has some other words (laughs) to say as well. And I will preface this by saying sometimes I get a little bit tired of reading Luther because a lot of what Luther says is polemical, meaning he's speaking against another person or another group of people. And often he does it in a playground style where he just, yo mama, and that's why you shouldn't listen to him. And you kind of read and go, well, okay, maybe his mama is whatever you said, and maybe his face does look like the rear end of a dog. But I'd kind of like to know what he actually says. So he, you know, you'll read two full paragraphs about how this person is being described in caricature, and then he gets to the end and says, oh, and also he thinks this, and I don't like that about what he thinks. And you go, okay, well, I, you know, I could have just read that part. But sometimes there's like. 5% of the time when what Luther writes is really, really, really entertaining when he's making fun of people. And uh, this is one of those times. So this is what he says about people who don't like uh, uh, music or see it as a gift of God. He says, a person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. But wait, there's more! He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it, that's so good.
1: You know, C.S. Lewis talks too about, uh, about music in the church. And here's a question that I'm gonna pose to you as a preface, a question that I bet you've never, ever, ever considered. When God speaks... In creation, and God spoke, and it was. When he speaks, what language does he speak? And don't say German. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned a thing or two from you. (laughs) Okay? What does he speak? What does it sound like when God speaks creation into existence? When he says, let there be light, what does it sound like? What words does he use? What is the tone of his voice? I've got you all, see? Because you've never thought about it. That's something that we take for granted when we can read the scripture and read, and the Lord said, let there be light. And we say, oh, well, God said, let there be light. He spoke. But you never stop to consider how it is that God speaks. Now, I can't actually give you a solid answer on that. I wasn't there. But this is all to serve as a preface because when you read The Chronicles of Narnia, here's another pitch, by the way, if you haven't read them, read them and you can check them out from the library of your local pastor. Um, Yeah, call card and everything. Um, That's not a joke, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, it's The Magician's Nephew is the book, which chronologically is the first book, but in the series is, I think,
0: Fourth book.
1: But that whole book talks about how, how the land of Narnia is created and how it is that Lucy and all of her siblings find that magic wardrobe that they go into to enter Narnia in the first book. Well, where did Narnia come from? And it's beautiful.
0: So I have more time. Pardon
1: me? is of isn't it? well, it's sort of like a parallel universe to us. It's a parallel universe to ours created for, for allegory. But uh, I think it ex- the way that it's supposed to exist is in parallel with Although the way he describes it too, time goes by faster there. So if you come, like the kids come in between the first and the second book, they come back through the wardrobe and they're already young kings and everything and then they go back and they've been gone for 50 years and it's like a week. So, but anyway, um, how does Narnia begin? Well, you know that Aslan, uh, Christ is depicted as Aslan in the books, who's the big lion And these kids go through and they have these magic rings that they use and they go back to the dawn of time when Narnia is created (coughs) and the lion sings. That when he speaks to bring forth creation, he speaks in something that they can't understand and something that is outside the human's capability of comprehending and that he sings in a music that is too beautiful for words and yet not comprehended by them. And the whole description of the scene where he comes over the hills and as he sings, things pop up. It's really great, but I think the idea that when God speaks, that there's sort of a divine language of music. Now, you know, I'm not biased or anything, but I just think that that's kind of a, it's a neat image to think about. Well, how, what does God sound like when he speaks? I don't know talks an awful lot about choruses of angels singing and uh, songs before the heavenly throne, so there must be some kind of heavenly music. And to be quite honest, after being able to look at my Lord's face and gaze upon his wounds for eternity, the next thing that I'm looking forward to is being a part of the heavenly chorus and hearing all of that otherworldly song uh, and, and participating in its beauty. So anyway, Uh, Before we move on to the text, any questions about anything here? Well, all right. Uh, So, from depths of woe I cry to thee in trial and tribulation. Bend down thy gracious ear to me. Lord, hear my supplication. If thou rememberest every sin, who then could heaven ever win or stand before thy presence? And of course, here's with Psalm 130, out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So the first stanza is the one that is the, the closest to the psalm that is being paraphrased. The other ones take bits of the psalm and then expand on it. That's, uh, we've, I know I've said this before, when you paraphrase a psalm in a hymn, because of what hymns are, uh, partly designed to teach things and to make difficult theological points easier to understand, often when you're paraphrasing a psalm, it's not just that you take the words and you say, well, how can I make this fit into a meter so that people can sing it? It's also, well, now this means something really great, uh, so I'm gonna devote a whole stanza to Explaining what this means. So that's how you can get stanzas that are bigger than the verses of the psalm that are being paraphrased, because not only is it the psalm, the words of the psalm that you're speaking, it's also the slight commentary on that psalm, so that you're saying, the, as you sing the hymn, it's being locked into your memory because uh, of how music works locking you know, locking things into your memory with tunes, with melodies, um, it puts it in a different memory bank and it makes things more familiar. So you're doing it with a tune and then you're also learning the text of the psalm and you're learning what the psalm means all at the same time while you're doing this one simple task of opening a hymnal and singing a hymn. Um, so... The answer to the question, of course, uh, if the Lord did mark iniquities, meaning if the Lord kept a a ledger and said, well, Gregory, it's been a bad week for you. Daryl, I'm sorry. Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) So if the Lord really did mark iniquities that way, who really could come before him and stand in his presence and say, hey, look at me, I'm your child? (laughs) Nobody could. Because every single person would be on the naughty list and the book of the nice list would remain empty. Nobody would be getting anything. So that's sort of the point. I cry to you. You be attentive to my cry. I am crying to you, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. Remember that poor and miserable don't mean what you think they mean. Poor doesn't mean you don't have a lot of money, and it doesn't mean that people run up to you and go, oh,
0: poor, poor you.
1: It means you have nothing to give. You have nothing to offer the Lord. To be miserable doesn't, it's not a commentary on how you feel like when you wake up in the morning with a 104 degree fever and you look at your spouse and go, I feel miserable. It's about the condition. To be miserable means that you are in need of mercy. It's from a Latin root. So when you confess that you're poor and miserable, you're not talking about how you feel. You're talking about how you are. I am coming before you. Hear my supplication. I'm crying to you from the depths. I have nothing to give you that could ever atone for what I have. And the only thing that I can do is to ask for your mercy because I need it. That's what you're saying. That's what the text is saying. Like I said at the beginning of class, the heart, specifically you know, the regenerate heart, post-baptism you can look back and all of a sudden know your sins. It's kind of weird in a way because in the garden they eat of the fruit and then they know and they're ashamed. But then you become desensitized to sin. So you run around and you sin and you don't really... And then you're baptized and all of a sudden when you're baptized, your eyes are opened again and you realize that sin that you've been looking at and then you're ashamed again. Oh my goodness, I can't believe that I've lived like this. Out of the depths I cry to you. The heart that is regenerate, the eyes that see the self for who the self really is, they know that there is nothing to do but to plead to God. And the heart that believes wills to do nothing else but plead to God. Why? Because the heart that believes trusts in the promises of God. So that when God says, come to me, give me your sins, And I will be the prodigal father who runs down the road to you, puts the best robe on you, gives you a big old hug, and then brings you inside to give you a real nice supper. Every time. That's the thing about the divine service, by the way. You might sing hymns that you don't really like. You may not enjoy the readings for the day pastor might make a mistake which reduces the quality of the service that you're getting. You might knock over the flag and putting the veil back on. You might not like the words of the sermon. But where, or, or, or you might look across and you might see somebody that you don't really like. And then that detracts from your Experience because you can't get out of your head, well, that person did me wrong. So man will let you down and pastor will let you down. It's inevitable. But Jesus never will. And uh, stuff might not always go right or be exactly the way that you want it in divine service, but Jesus will never give you a bad supper. A sermon might be a real... Real piece of work. Not in the good sense. But don't worry. Jesus will give you a good supper. He's the prodigal father. Okay? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Here is some commentary Thy love and grace alone avail to blot out my transgressions. The best and holiest deeds must fail to break sin's dread oppression. I can't do it. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Well, what does it mean that there is forgiveness with God? Obviously, it means that there is something that needs to be forgiven. God doesn't say, hey, I'm a God of love and forgiveness to a bunch of people that he doesn't think need forgiveness. So there is forgiveness that is necessary, which means that only the love and grace of the Lord will avail. Because forgiveness is not something that's earned. It's not something that's garnered. It's something that's distributed uh, because of love. The prodigal father doesn't run out to his son and give his son a big banquet because his son has done anything. In fact, he stops his son from doing what his son was going to do, which is what?
0: Begging for forgiveness. No,
1: he doesn't stop him from begging for forgiveness. He hears his confession. There's something else the son is going to do, though, and the father cuts him off.
0: Pardon me? Offer to be his servant? Yes,
1: which is also the name of a game show. Let's make a deal. <laughs> so he comes back and he says, hey listen, I've been really bad, but let's make a deal. I'll work for you and, and, and you don't have to pay me, just let me be like your hired servant. Does that deal sound okay? And you say, boy, that's a great deal. I don't even have to pay you. That's great but the father says, I don't want to hear any deal that you have to offer. I'm just going to give you forgiveness. You didn't earn my forgiveness and you don't earn my love. You're my son. A child doesn't earn his parents' love. The love is bestowed. Uh, So this is the Lord. Therefore, because of all of this, because of what you know about the Lord and his mercy, my hope is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. And honestly, that is a great comfort to the Christian. If you came to me in a time of pastoral need, or if you came to me wanting to confess sins that were particularly troubling to you, and you were distraught about it, the worst possible thing that I could say is, well, look into yourself and you'll figure it out. Or be a little better. Oh, you're sad about this? I've got a, I've got a solution. Hey, just, have you ever tried just not being sad? That kind of, that kind of business just doesn't work. And um, of course, when you're in the depth, the only thing you can do is to look for God. You're in that depth, and you know, you're probably there because of your own misbehavior. So you're there, and this is part of, by the way, part of the beauty of Christianity. This is the one thing that sets Christianity, and there are are many things, but this is the one really big thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. You're in the pit and you don't have to build a ladder for yourself to climb out, to go up and reach God, and give him a bunch of things so that he stops being angry with you. In Christianity, you're in the pit, and you try to build your ladder, and then you try to climb up, and all the rungs break, and you fall back down into the mud, and then you try to climb out, and it's slippery, and you just can't get out, and here you are, stuck in this pit, And God puts on his muck boots and his waders and he comes down in there with you. And God gets dirty in the mud where you are stuck so that he can come to bring you to where he is so that he can give you all the things that he wants you to have so that you can be happy. It's completely the opposite. And it's beautiful. And though it tarry through the night until the morning waken, my heart shall never doubt his might, nor, all right, that should be nor account itself forsaken. O Israel, trust in God your Lord, born of the Spirit and the Word. Now wait for his appearing. Though great our sins, yet greater still is God's abundant favor. Hey, look. I'm not making stuff up when I tell you that sins are addition and grace is multiplication, or uh, that grace is exponential, that there will always be more grace afforded to you than sins that you have to offer up. One plus one plus one plus one. You can make a pretty high stack of sins when you're adding them up, one on top of the other, one plus one plus one like building blocks, but when the Lord has grace that is exponential and infinite, oh, your tower of blocks will never, ever, ever even begin to touch the threshold of the mercies that God has for you. Though great our sins, yet greater still is God's abundant favor. His hand of mercy never will abandon us nor waver. Mankind will let you down. Your brothers and sisters will let you down. Even your brothers and sisters in Christ will let you down. We just can't help it. We're not good at very much as humans, but that's one thing we are really good at is letting people down and hurting one another. But the hand of the Lord will never leave you. The hand of the Lord will never forsake you. Bitten as many times as it is when it comes to feed you, it will always be faithful to you. Our shepherd, good and true is he, who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. All right. Let's get to the nitty gritty Six zero seven. <clears throat> I will sing you the tune one time, and then I will sing the first stanza through for you. So you, you have two opportunities to listen, and then we'll sing stanzas four and five together.
0: <coughs> Duh.
1: Which is just shorthand for the presentation of, for the purification of uh, Mary and the presentation of Jesus in the temple, there's an opening hymn that's in your bulletin, it's on the insert, the choir is singing three of those stanzas, take note of that, the choir is singing, there's chanting the introit. In. take note of that, the gradual is replaced by a choral response, which is the nunc dimittis, Lord now let your servant go in peace. But you'll see why that's important in a minute. There's the installation of new officers. If you are somebody who's newly elected or if you are somebody who's been re-elected or reappointed, just come back on up at that time. I don't, I don't want to have to stand there and say, Now, will you all please
0: step on
1: up? Because I don't want to be like Bob Barker. So just, <laughs> just uh, after the offering, you can come, up, come on up and, you know, line up like usual. Um, after communion, we're not singing the nunc dimittis like we normally would because it was in place of the gradual. Instead, we're singing a hymn version of that, which is 617. O oh Lord, we praise thee. Oh Lord, we praise thee. Bless thee and adore thee. Okay? Uh, that's a real fun one. Okay? So... And of course, the last distribution hymn is one of those that has a bunch of different stanzas that are all optional. It's stanza eight. So when you see that and it says, insert appropriate stanza here, just jump down to stanza eight, okay? It'll all be all right. Uh, Yeah, so that's the service. Tell your friends and neighbors, then everyone will know what's going on. But our secretary does such a great job getting everything in the bulletin, so. It's all there for you. Okay, anything else? Great. We'll see you at the altar.